Father, we're grateful to enter into this time now of uh, reading your word and, and thinking uh, about what your word says and how it applies to our lives. And Lord, I pray that as a congregation, as a church, that we would always approach your word in such a way where we want to position ourselves underneath it and not over it. Lord, as you know, we're going to be starting a sermon series this morning that aims to be addressing some issues that are going on in our culture. And Lord, whenever we start to go into that direction, we, we, it means that we're going to be talking about issues that might be sensitive or, or issues that there might be disagreements on issues that our culture certainly is very polarized about. And, and so, Lord, it's very, very important that we just have this posture as a church to come under your word, to see you as the one who is the originator of truth and that you have given that to us in your scriptures. And so that, Lord, as we come to you, as we look at what's happening in the world and we come to you and we, we look for wisdom and we look for guidance on how we should think, how we should engage in this type of culture, that, Lord, we would... We would come looking to your word. And so help us with that this morning, Lord. And I do pray this, Lord. I pray that as we do ministry here in Northern Virginia, as this church gets started and begins to grow, Lord, that, Lord, you just give us a, a prophetic ability to boldly proclaim what your word says about the issues that our culture is wrestling with and that we would not fear when they push back. Lord, help us just to have confidence in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's imagine we're back in maybe the 1970s during the Watergate scandal, uh, maybe the 60s during Vietnam or the 40s during World War II. All right, I wasn't alive for any of those eras, but, you know, just think back to those. Um, so during those times, let me ask you a question. What was, for the average American their average access or consumption of the news of the day? Like when did they get news or information about what was going on in the world, right? I mean, during those times, there was no such thing as the internet. That didn't come until the 90s, really. Uh, there, there was no such thing as cell phones, much less smartphones where you have constant access to information going on in the world much less smartphones with HD video cameras where anyone and everyone can live broadcast anything they want to the entire world instantaneously. There was no such thing as 24-hour cable news. That didn't start till 1980 when CNN started. Right? During these times, our access and our consumption of the news was much less. You waited for your morning or evening paper. You waited for the news program to come on TV or the radio to listen. And, and back during these times, we would say we, had a, we actually had a 24-hour news cycle, right? As events around the world unfolded, you know, journalists, they had the time to collect their facts and, you know, produce the reports and get their articles ready and publish it for the next distribution, whether that was paper or TV or radio. But times have really changed. I mean, they say today it's no longer a 24-hour news cycle, but it's a 24-second news cycle. I mean, think about it for a second. If you combine the amount of news that we receive every single day, 
with now an unprecedented amount of sources that we get that news from, mix in a little social media, and what do we get? We get a very hyper-polarized and seemingly angry world. Because of the technology that we have today, which is not a bad thing, it, it is mere seconds between something major happening in the world and we all finding out about it. It is a mere seconds between something major happening in the world and we watching a video of it. And now because of social media, it is a mere seconds between something major happening in the world and the world debating it. It's a world where when a police officer shoots an unarmed African-American man, we instantly have video to see, we have commentary to try to understand, and the world enters into a conversation about justice immediately. It's a world where every word from our elected officials is parsed, debated, and politicized instantly. It's a world where any event, any comment, anything could go viral instantly across the world. And so this is the question that I want to try and begin to answer for us this morning. Here's the big question. How do we as Christians engage in our hyper-polarized, overly politicized, drama-addicted culture? How do we engage in this? Because our culture is talking about a lot of things right now. I would say our country is in the midst of heightened awareness of the underlining racial tension that's always existed here. I would say we're in the midst of a national dialogue right now about gender, about sexuality, about immigration. We're in the aftermath of the 2016 election, which I think everyone can agree was for the history books. Includes FBI investigations of the Democratic nominee and now the Republican nominee sitting president. So our culture is processing a lot. We're talking about a lot. We're debating a lot. It's, a, it's generating a lot of hurt and a lot of division and a lot of anger. And quite frankly, I believe that if our culture is talking about something and the word of God addresses it, then we should be willing to address it in the church. So this is why we're going to start a sermon series today called This Cultural Moment. All right, we're just out of D.C. If we can't talk about these issues, we're not going to reach this town. And so this is a series we're going to do every five to six weeks, okay? So we're taking a break in our series in Ephesians 4. We'll come back to that next week. But every five to six weeks, we're going to pause whatever we're doing. We're going to jump into this series, and we're going to try to grab a topic that our culture is wrestling with and look to the scriptures to see how we as Christians should engage in this issue. And so this morning, as a way of introduction, I really just want to look to the Bible, when it comes to this major kind of overarching question, just how should we engage in this culture in general? And so to do that this morning, um, I want to look at a passage from Matthew 22. So how'd you get your Bibles out earlier? But if you look in your Bible in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15, I want to read a passage here. And what we're going to read is a historical account um, of Jesus and the interaction he had with some people in Jerusalem. Let's read this together. Matthew 22. I'm going to read verses 15 to 22. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that's Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, 
and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. All right, so let me kind of help us understand exactly what just happened in this episode with Jesus, because what we just saw was a classic political gotcha question, okay? And we know that's true because in verse 15, it says that they plotted to try to entangle him, right? They wanted to catch him. But let me give you some political context here so you can understand what's, what's going on, all right? So verse 16 tells us that the Pharisees sent some of their disciples, all right, along with the Herodians to ask Jesus this question. The Pharisees were a very conservative Jewish group, right? And they sought to follow the Mosaic law as perfectly as they could, all right? So that's the Pharisees. And then you have the Herodians, and they were a group of people that were in support of the reign of King Herod. Okay, so just some quick history for you. All right, we're Jesus. This is probably taking place in Jerusalem, this little episode with Jesus. All right, and we're in the early part of the first century. And we have to remember that Jerusalem and the surrounding region was under the occupation of Rome. So King Herod, specifically Herod Antipas, was a Roman client king or a vassal king over the region of Galilee, where most of Jesus' ministry took place. So basically, King Herod ruled the area under the authority of Caesar, but Rome had taken over. So the Herodians were a party of people who were pro-Rome, and the Pharisees were a party of people who were anti-Rome. And the Pharisees were Jews, and they were not happy about being occupied and ruled by Gentiles. They wanted to govern their own affairs. They wanted to govern their own affairs according to the Mosaic law. They did not want the Romans controlling their land, the promised land. And so here's, you got to understand this. The Herodians and the Pharisees are political enemies, I mean, they're opposite sides of the spectrum, right? Democrats, Republicans, left, right. They're opposites. But isn't it interesting that these two political enemies both found Jesus to be a problem? So they reached across the aisle. They found some common ground and plotted together to trap Jesus. So they approach Jesus and they attempt to butter him up a little bit. You know, we see that in verse 16, if you look at the end of verse 16, you know, he says, teacher, we know that you're true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, right? I mean, they just try to flatter him and Jesus, you know, saying, we're your friend. We think you're awesome. We, we're simply coming to you because we have this question. We don't know the answer to it. And we need you to instruct us on it, right? So they say, Jesus, tell us, verse 17, should we pay this tax or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And so when they use this word lawful, they're not referring to Roman law. They're referring to the Mosaic law. Is it lawful according to the scriptures to pay this tax to Caesar? Okay. And believe me, 
the Pharisees and the Herodians do not agree on the answer to this question, right? This is a politically loaded question. I mean, it's like Bernie Sanders and Paul Ryan coming to you and saying, hey, should healthcare be public or private? Can you let us know? Right? They don't agree on that, on that question. And so in answering that question, you support one side while rejecting the other. Right? So here's the gotcha question. If Jesus says that it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is shown to be siding with the Herodians, with the Roman occupation of Judea, and he risks losing many followers, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees. If Jesus says that it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians will certainly pass that information along to Rome, where Rome might be motivated to arrest Jesus because he was already creating a stir. And so the trap is that if Jesus said yes or no, someone was going to be upset. Some sort of riot probably would have ensued. Now, Jesus wasn't in the least worried about this apparent trap. Of course, he easily sniffed it out and didn't fall for the flattery. If you look at verse 18, you know, it says, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites, right? Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't take divine omniscience to know what you're trying to pull here. And so in verse 19, Jesus asks, hey, show me the coin that you used to pay the tax. And so they give him a Roman denarius, all right? This specific tax that they're referring to here is the Roman poll tax is basically a tax on the Jewish people because they were occupied by Rome. So they gave a tax, right? And so that's what this tax was. And the coin that they used was this denarius. And on the coin itself, there was an inscription, an engraving of a picture of Caesar. And on this coin, all right, because we've dug up these coins, what you, there's an inscription on there that refers to Caesar as the son of God, right? It, it, it paints this picture of Caesar being divine, and so this specific tax was problematic for strict Jews who had a problem with the Roman occupation of their land in the first place, but also had a problem using this coin, which to them had a blasphemous inscription on it. They felt it, it could be blasphemous for them to use this coin, almost as if they were supporting Caesar's claim to be God. So Jesus asked in verse 20, who, who is this on the coin? Whose picture is this? And obviously in verse 21, they say, well, that's Caesar. And then Jesus gives them the perfect, slippery, yet profound answer to their question. Well, if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar, right? You know, if, if you see the word in the text there, I believe if you go to verse 21 is render. Yeah, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And that word literally means give back or to fulfill an obligation. If this coin belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar, but give to God what is God's. In other words, your attempt to trap me by making me pit devotion to God and obedience to the governing authorities isn't going to work. You can be wholly devoted to God and obey the law of the state at the same time. And so in verse 22, we see that they marveled at his answer and left knowing that their attempts to trap Jesus had failed. But this morning, I want to think a little more deeply about Jesus' answer to their question. I mean, what does it really mean, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Because I believe if we dig into what Jesus is actually saying here and apply it to our current cultural moment, 
we're going to get some guidance and wisdom in regard to our question for the morning. How should we engage this culture that we're living in? And so in our passage this morning, I believe what Jesus does is he reminds us of our identity. And then our identity informs our purpose. And then our purpose informs our conduct. And so when we're talking about how we as Christians engage in this culture, we need to talk about these three things, our identity, our purpose, and our conduct. And so let's hit those three. And let's start with our identity. Jesus says in verse 21, to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give God the things that are God's. How did Jesus know that the denarius belonged to Caesar? Right, it's an obvious question, obvious answer because the denarius had the image of Caesar imprinted on it, all right? So then how do we know who or what belongs to God? I mean, using the same logic, we would say we give to God the very thing that bears the image of God. And that would be you. That would be me. We and every other human being through all of history have been made in the image of God. That is our identity. We belong to God. So yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, but give your whole life to God. God created us to bear his image and to live our lives in worship of him. But the world, including all of us, instead of embracing that identity, has actually chosen to reject God and not give to God what is God's, but rather take for ourselves what truly belongs to God. So most of the world does not know that they bear the image of God and are now alienated from God. And this is exactly why Jesus came. So that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he could accomplish redemption for us. He could provide a way for our sins to be forgiven and we could be made right with God. And so as followers of Jesus, because our sins have been forgiven, we've been reconciled to God and our eyes have been opened to who we really are, image bearers of God. Uh, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading from this chapter a lot in this sermon. But look at what Peter says about the church, about those who follow Jesus. He says in verse 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all the people who follow Jesus. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people before you knew Christ, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as a follower of Jesus, we belong to God. We don't belong to this world. Our home is with him and we know that we'll spend all of eternity where we truly belong in his kingdom. And so let me just stop here and say that if if you've never trusted Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins and believe that he came here so that he could accomplish redemption for us and had your eyes open to the reality of who you really are as an image bearer of God. This means, if you've never trusted in that, it means that you're still in your sins. You're still alienated from God, that that heaven is actually not your home. But this morning, that can change. 
Because if you confess your sin, turn away from rejecting God and trust that Jesus, he really came here. He really went to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He really went into the grave and came out of the grave three days later and is really offering us grace and mercy this morning. If you trust in that this morning, then all of that changes. You become reconciled to God. And so the question for all of us this morning is, have I trusted in Jesus? Is that my identity? Do I see myself as an image bearer of God? Do I belong to God? And is my true home, my true citizenship in his kingdom or not? Because when we discover that our true identity is that we're image bearers of God, that we belong to God, then we discover our true purpose in this life. As verse 21 says, our purpose is to give to God what is God's. To give God all of who we are. And if we belong to God, if our citizenship is in heaven and we are no longer, we no longer belong to this world, then the scripture says that we have to view our purpose on this planet as being ambassadors of God. Ambassadors of God, representing God. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The passage we just read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, look at this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Look, that that's a key word, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Right, the Bible is clear that the Christian's role on this planet is to represent God to this world. He is our king and we represent him. We are his ambassadors here. Okay, so here's what this means when it comes to engaging our culture. A Christian should be hard to slap a worldly label on. Should think about that for a second. A Christian should be hard to slap a worldly label on. We belong to God. We represent God. We submit to what God says is true and what God says is good. So since we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we don't represent worldly things, right? It should be hard to slap a man-made label on us. Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, right, left, evangelical, reformed, Baptist. I mean, a man-made label, a man-made ideology cannot possibly contain all of what it means to be an image bearer of God, to represent him. And look, I'm not saying that all of those things are bad. I'm not saying it's bad to identify with a particular political party or a particular Christian tribe. I have my own political leanings. I have no problem identifying as an evangelical that's gotten tricky lately, or even as a Baptist, right? But here is where it becomes a problem, is man-made labels change and shift. The principles and values they represent change over time. They are fallible. And so God and what he represents and what he has said is good and true is never changes. It's infallible. God's word is not subject to the judgment of pop culture or political parties or the media. And the trap that we fall into is we identify with man-made labels and quickly find ourselves becoming ambassadors for those labels 
over and above being ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And so we need to have the wisdom and discernment to know when our worldly labels are damaging our role as ambassadors of Christ and not to be afraid to challenge those labels or even disassociate from those labels in order to remain faithful as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. I mean, I've said it and I'll say it again. Christians should be really uncomfortable offering their full support behind the Republican Party. And Christians should be really uncomfortable offering their full support behind the Democratic Party. Both parties have elements in their platform that Christians should celebrate. And both parties have elements in their platform that Christians should protest. I mean, don't you find it interesting that even in our text this morning, you can't fit Jesus into a sociopolitical box. He refused to play the polarized game of the day. And Christians today should refuse to give in to our polarized culture of the day. The world wants to shove you to a side, slap a label on you. And as Christians, we are not of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God and it should be frustratingly frustratingly hard to label us. And so our identity as image bearers of God informs our purpose as ambassadors of God. And our role as ambassadors of the kingdom of God then informs our conduct. As followers of Jesus and ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we are called to conduct ourselves in such a way that brings honor and glory to the one whom we represent, and that's God. And I think Jesus points to this in his answer in our text when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. I mean, Jesus is pointing to the fact that Christians do have the responsibility to submit to their governing authorities and live honorably. I mean, the Bible makes an airtight case for this. Uh, We were in 1 Peter 2 earlier, but look at verses 11 and 12, a little bit below what we've already read. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So he's saying, you're a sojourner and exile because you belong to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven, but you're living here now. And so because you're a sojourner and exile, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, insert unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment. Look at verse 17, same chapter, go down a little further. Verse 17, look at this. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The emperor during the time that Peter was writing this to his churches was Nero, who was famous for his vicious and violent persecution of the church. Peter says, honor the emperor. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We could go to Romans 13, but I don't have time. But the scripture makes a clear case that we are to live honorably and respect authority. Listen, listen, even if those authorities are opposed to us or do not hold our values. So what does that mean? What does it look like to be honorable, to conduct ourselves in an honorable way? Well, to live honorably means to live in such a way that commands respect. That's what it means to live honorably. 
I live in a way that commands respect. If we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God and we represent God, then our conduct needs to appropriately represent God. Because if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, but we engage in this culture in a dishonorable way, then we bring dishonor to God. And so this applies to how we speak about the cultural issues of the day, how we dialogue with other people, how we disagree with other people, what we post on our social media accounts, how we handle it when someone accuses us or calls us names, how we handle it when we are offended by someone, how we handle it when someone else is offended by us. Do we respond with gentleness, patience, and respect? Or do we respond with defensiveness? Do we engage in conversation over these sensitive topics in an honorable way or in a dishonorable way? Let me put it this way. I mean, if someone were to examine our social media accounts or how we speak about these issues in the workplace or with our neighbors or with our friends, who would we be found to be representing? Whose ambassador would we be? As our culture is deep into being hyperpolarized and enraged at everything, it should be Christians that model what it looks like to disagree civilly. It should be Christians that keep the conversation honorable and not descend into childish name-calling. It should be Christians that have the ability to love and serve the person they don't agree with. It should be Christians who care most about representing their God and less about winning and maintaining political power. But conducting ourselves honorably does not mean that we never challenge or we never protest. Sometimes it is the silence of the church and of Christians that is most dishonorable. And in our culture and political climate, it's easier for churches to remain silent on everything that's politically sensitive for the sake of not upsetting anyone. It's just easier to do it that way. But speaking to this, here's what one man said about this. He said, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic reign, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. You know who that was? That was Martin Luther King Jr. Writing a letter from his jail cell in Birmingham to the pastors of many predominantly white churches, who although they would say they were for civil rights, they didn't do anything about it. They didn't join the cause. They didn't preach God's word and connect the dots from what the Bible has to say about justice and what was happening all around them. They didn't support civil rights as a representative of God should have. They waited till it became culturally acceptable and safe. They feared that their members would leave their churches if they publicly supported desegregation. So it's just easier to stay silent. And it was dishonorable. As easy it is to look into the past, though, and call the silence of the church dishonorable, my question for us today is, what are we afraid to talk about today? 
What in our culture is too politically sensitive for us to boldly preach what God has to say about it? Where is there injustice and we're refusing to speak up? Because I don't want to stand before God and be told that the silence of Grace Hill Church was dishonorable. So this is why we're going to start this series called This Cultural Moment. I realize that what we talked about today was, was very high level. And we need to dig into some specific issues and talk about how Christians should engage in those specific issues. But today, I just wanted to lay a foundation about who we are as image bearers of God, what we've been called to do as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and how we are commanded to conduct ourselves. And we're commanded to do that in an honorable way. And so what we're going to do is we're going to revisit this series every five to six weeks or so through 2018, and we're going to tackle some specific topics. The topic that we're going to look at next is we're going to look at race. It's a big conversation in our culture, and the Bible has a lot to say. We're going to talk about gender. It's a big conversation in our culture, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. We want to tackle issues like pro-life issues or even the Me Too movement. Again, our culture is speaking about a lot and the Bible has so much to say to address it. So we have a lot that we're going to tackle. We also want to use in the future as we hit specific topics, we want to use our monthly fellowship nights to do some Q&A so we can engage deeper into these topics as well. But here's my prayer for us at Grace Hill is that we would see ourselves as belonging to God and that we would give to God what is God's. That he would give us the winsomeness of Jesus and instead of being shoved to a political side, we would be content outside of the box as a representative of the kingdom of God. That's my prayer for us. So let me pray for that now. Would you pray with me? Father, we're just so grateful for your word and we're so grateful, Lord, that we don't have to navigate life and culture and the things that are going on all around us blindly. You have addressed us. You have told us what is good, what is true. And so, Lord, I pray for our church and I pray that we would be a church that's committed to truth as you have given to us in your word and that we wouldn't waver from that. I pray that we'd be committed to what you have said is good and right and holy. Lord, the church in every generation has experienced cultural pushback to the things that you have to say. That's because, Lord, the kingdom of this world is fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves as representatives of the kingdom of God people who were equal in our sin before you and people who are now equal in the grace that we have received in and through Jesus Christ. So Lord, may this place, as we gather, as this church comes together, may this place look like and feel like and smell like God's kingdom. And Lord, would that be a witness to the culture that's around us? So Lord, we love you. We pray for your guidance. We pray for your direction in this series. But Lord, also as we do ministry in this town. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.